Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Humorist Sloane Crosley is best known for her witty essay collections, such as I Was Told There'd Be Cake and Look Alive Out There, both finalists for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. But her new book is a novel, cult classic, a mystery, romantic comedy, and conspiracy thriller rolled into one, with a sprinkling of mind control and a Christmas carol for good measure. We first meet the novel's heroine, Lola, as she sneaks out of a dinner with friends in Manhattan's Chinatown for a cigarette, and unexpectedly bumps into an ex-boyfriend. The next day, she runs into another one. And another. What for many of us would merely seem like a bizarre series of uncomfortable encounters, or perhaps a personal nightmare, turns out to be something much stranger for Lola, who discovers that her very weird week has resulted from the machinations of a group that insists it is not a cult. Sloane Crosley joins us to talk about love, psychology, and her new novel, Cult Classic. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Sloane. Oh, thank you for having me. Where did the idea for this novel come from? I am dying to know whether you two ran into a string of ex-boyfriends after sneaking out for a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where did they, it's like, where did babies come from? Well, when an idea and a rent check love each other very, very much, (laughs) they make a novel. Um, No, uh, I think in general, most things in my life come from a magnificent amount of avoidance and fear. Um, I'm highly motivated by these things. And the good news is that it comes out as something positive and, and creative. But I basically had been avoiding writing about romance in any kind of concentrated way because of how it looks. I, I have a history of not feeling like I have a lot to say about it, um, not to my friends, but professionally. So in my second book of essays, um, How Did You Get This Number?, I remember I handed the manuscript into my editor and I thought, we're really an essay short here and we can do this the hard way or the easy way. You know, I can filibuster and write about how annoying I find frozen yogurt or you can tell me what's what's real and what's missing and what's weighty. And he said, you know, you really never write about your love life. And I bristled because I think, at least in the nonfiction world, um, that's, that's a certain kind of writing or certain kind of pigeonholing that I, that I don't tend to gravitate towards myself. And I see also how it gets treated. So it just isn't, if I really wanted to write about it, it wouldn't matter about the perception, but I thought, you know, I don't, it's not worth the squeeze. And I said, I have nothing to say about this. (laughs) And then I went home and wrote a 13,000 word essay that I still one of the ones I'm more proud of. But aside from that, um, that's really where the novel came from. I thought I can do this in a fictional form and then my next challenge was how to address dating, how to address romance, how we relate to each other. That says more than, gee whiz, the internet has really screwed us up. Um, and that addresses it in a fresh way, which is really hard to do. There are certain topics that you really have to find your own door into them because they are so well-trodden. You know, um, I would lump the Civil War in <laughs> with dating <laughs> in this one respect. <laughs> I don't know, maybe in many respects, it depends on everyone's personal life, I guess. (laughs) But I guess, um, so I felt like I had this kind of funky, twisted wish fulfillment container in which to put my thoughts on modern romance. Um, Not to be totally hokey about it, but it is as much about the friendship, you know, the friends 
the friends we made and manipulated along the way. Well, I mean, how did your approach in the 13,000 word personal essay about romance differ to your approach with talking about romance in a novel? I guess, how do you know whether an idea that you have, you know, whether it's about love or something else, is something you want to explore in fiction versus nonfiction? I mean, I think at a sort of macro level, it's the same, you know, things just sort of, you observe things, they get dumped in certain buckets. Um, I imagine if I was a poet or had any skills as a playwright, um, bits of dialogue would naturally kind of flow towards one direction or the other. Um, but you know, for nonfiction, it was more about putting the medicine in applesauce because I didn't, you know, you're in so much danger when you write narrative nonfiction of, of the complaint, you know, um, that, you know, if you're really good, it's a polemic. If it's short, it's, 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 it's sort of whiny. Um, and I'm so conscious of that, uh, because my heroes for narrative nonfiction tend to be a little more old fashioned. So David Rakoff, David Sedaris, uh, Nora Ephron, um, Dorothy Parker, Joseph Mitchell, these, these are sort of probably obvious candidates. But so for that one, it's a dual essay about uh, a guy who broke my heart. It really is sort of two different human beings that are mixed into one for the essay. Um, you know, the facts of the case and the feelings for another one. Um, and then at the same time, I'm accepting stolen furniture uh, off the back of a truck, uh, which actually happened. Um, and so I just had this question in my mind of, you know, how responsible are we for other people's stuff? And it worked on a both literal and, and metaphorical level. Um, but it sort of needed to be disguised in that way. Um, whereas I feel like the irony is, is that with fiction where it is inherently disguised, I felt like I could just face this topic and tackle it in a more dead on fashion without worrying that I was complaining because my, <laughs> my heroine is complaining. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. And I can also add some fantastical elements, you know, give it an actual plot and an engine that was beyond me. Um, so it's a totally different muscle. Um, pushing a similar rock. It's so interesting that you say you feel less like you're going to get conflated with your heroine because, I mean, it's in the first person and Lola is also funny and you're funny. And, Thank you. you. Know, <laughs> She's Jewish. I'm Jewish. The similarities, they just keep rolling. <laughs> but you didn't feel any danger of people conflating Lola's opinions with your own. You know, like you weren't worried people were going to be Googling Sloan Crosley single after this or like worse, Sloan Crosley cult. Oh, is that worse? <laughs> Maybe better. I, I think don't know. I, I'd prefer the latter. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, but I guess it's not so much that I don't feel like that will happen. Well, two things. One is that's a fortunate position to be in because that means people are reading the book. But I don't, um, what is the word? I don't care. <laughs> For, it's just because it doesn't feel, um, like I'm really ratting anyone out. I'm, I'm revealing things I don't want to reveal. There are many things about fiction that are scarier to me than nonfiction. It feels like performing in a way that it's a sharp difference for me from fiction. I know authors who, you know, exclusively write fiction who have a total horror of writing about themselves um, because they feel like it would be so embarrassing and so revealing. And for me, it's, it's the reverse. Fiction feels like singing in the talent contest as opposed to juggling or reading a poem. You know, if I had a choice, I would choose the other two. So but the same things that make fiction scary 
for me personally, also make it quite protective for me personally. Did you do any kind of preparation to make writing this novel less scary? Because, you know, it's fiction and also it's romance, which was like a third rail kind of. Did you yes, yeah. read a lot of romance? Did you watch a lot of rom-coms? Nora Ephron, did you, you know, look at comic novelists? Um, No. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. But instead I did. I did what is essentially almost like the equivalent of reading a restaurant review after you go to the restaurant to see if it chimes in with yours to see if someone had a better take on it. Um, so I just finished reading Muriel Sparks loitering with intent. I'm in the middle of um, Renata Adler's pitch dark. And these are amazing, very clarifying books, but I don't really do it while I'm writing. Cause I fear, I fear influence, which is sort of silly um, because there's something sort of, egomaniacal and in, in expressing that fear. I mean, I remember I used to work for a literary agent. That was my first job out of college. And we would get all these query letters, people asking to send the agent their manuscripts that would have lines in it. Like, you know, I, I worry that my, my work is a little too similar to Tobias Wolff's. And I'm like, well, why don't we, why don't we jump off that bridge when we, when we come to it? Um, so I really shouldn't be so um, fussy. I just wanted to give a topic that tends to consume most people I know the literary treatment as opposed to having it be just some sort of guilty pleasure, like a, a romantic comedy. I wanted it to ask sort of philosophical questions about how we relate, about commitment, about you know the institutions of monogamy, about you know men and women, all these things that get treated with um, sort of a light touch because I think people are afraid they're embarrassing. You know, they don't want to cop to the amount of times that they're either behave poorly themselves um, or been brokenhearted, and it seems... Um, just somehow doesn't seem lofty or elevated enough. So I, I, I tried to, to do that with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that originally you didn't really want to touch romance at all because of how it's perceived. Yes. Um, yeah. Can you expand more on that? Like, how do you feel like it is perceived? Oh, um, I think romance is different than relationships. Um, I think romance is perceived as light um, or it's perceived as not very uh, sort of intellectually, emotionally even, um, or academically rigorous, um, which is very unfair to romance novels. I mean, I the last romance novel I read was probably one that um, my sister used to keep under her bed when I was a kid that had, had a genuine, you know, bodice ripper. Um, you could feel for it in the dark underneath the bed because you could feel the embossed, you know, somehow embossed and debossed at the same time cover. I don't know. It's just very... A lot going on. Um, but I could, I, I mean, I do have respect for every kind of genre of fiction. I mean, it would be ridiculous for me to sit here and sort of slag off the romance novel. I mean, cause in a way it's, it's, it seems like an incredibly hard thing to do because unlike mystery or sci-fi or, or literary fiction, auto fiction, really anything, they all end the same way. They all have to have happy endings and they all have to have sex. And so, how do you get there in a way that's interesting for people who read romance novels? I have no idea. It's just, it's just so it, it is funny because I don't, I, I would be more comfortable with calling cult classic a love letter. And it, it, you know, then you fall into a separate set of cliches, you know, a love letter to the city, a love letter to, you know, this sort of generation. Um, even a love letter to old media. <laughs> There's a lot of that in the book. Um, but I don't, I think that, that it's, the whole thing is her questioning whether or not romance exists. So I don't know if it can be called a romance. 
Yeah. Or, you know, like even the way relationships are treated, I feel like if you're a woman of a certain age, really of any age, and you write about relationships, you're just going to get written (laughs) off (laughs) in some ways. Yeah. And I think I was sort of prepared to do that because the other thing is, and I don't know how much of what I'm about to say was I was conscious of at the time, but it, it does strike me as very true, which is, you know, as someone who's written three books of personal essays and one other novel, um, I often get painted as in in a shorthand of, oh, who, you know, Sloane who writes about zany, wacky, quirky. That that kind of thing. Usually dating gets swept into the dustpan um with, with all the adjectives and adverbs. And I feel like um if that's gonna happen either way and it's something I'm interested in, part of the blessing of of getting older is thinking, well, it doesn't really matter. I can almost no longer introduce myself to people in a certain way. So I might as well do what I want. And it's a freedom that I haven't really felt since before I published my first book and thought, is anyone going to read this? It's a paperback original collection of essays. People did read it. Um, so hopefully the same thing happens <laughs> with cult classic, but it does, it did feel very um, freeing uh, to write it. It didn't, I didn't, that's why before when I said, I don't care, it's because I I remember what it felt like to write it, which was not uh, super conscious of uh, negative reactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you described it as a like a, a love letter. In a lot of ways, I think it is. But in a lot of ways, I also think it's it's a novel about closure. You know, is, oh, yes. is there such a thing as closure? Is closure even desirable after a relationship, whether it's platonic or romantic? Mm-hmm. There is... Um, at the risk of quoting myself and then going ahead and doing it, um, there is a line towards the end of the book where she uh, says something like, oh, go at the risk of misquoting myself. She says something like, uh, you know, if closure is to be found, it's, it's in letting the door swing open a little bit. You know, um, that the effort it takes to slam it, that the effort, the pressure that we all feel um, to live in a, you know, a Beyonce song of... <laughs> all these terrible relationships or, or these mistakes I made existed to get me to, to you, to some sort of mythical finish line is a poisonous for the relationship that, that comes after it. Um, and B just, it doesn't really feel true. And, um, you know, Esther Perel, I am not, uh, so I don't, I don't have, I don't have advice for people on this, on this one, but I do think that there is room certainly in, in, in most of our hearts <laughs> to uh, hold a couple of grudges and move on at the same time. That is also incredibly freeing, Mm -hmm. you know, to not beat yourself up if you think about someone from the past or if someone bothers you in some way. I mean, and you know the difference between being sucked down and back into the past and being held back by it and, you know, searching for, let's say a, a concrete example is, you know, searching through someone's Instagram feeds or hashtags of a wedding to which you were not invited, that kind of thing. And you know when it's okay to just to just acknowledge that you still have feelings or wounds from something and can move on with it. And I feel like that shouldn't be that revolutionary. <laughs> but I think it takes Lola the whole course of the book to to realize that. Well, I mean, to say the quiet part loud, what's the part about, you know, what's the story you felt like hadn't been told about relationships? Hmm. I didn't want her to end up with somebody because she came to some magical realization. 
I just don't think that's how things work. And I know they have to work like that in so many ways, uh, in other art forms, um, specifically cinema. Um, but even if you go to the ballet, anything, what I wanted is to, um, maybe sort of, uh, lend a little bit of romantic or comedy or, you know, like you said before, like rom-com sheen to the idea that settling gets a bad rap, you know, being self-centered gets a bad rap because we bastardize these terms. So to feel the center of oneself, to feel like you know who you are and then operate from that place is not a bad thing. Um, and similarly, settling, figuring out what is good enough, what works, um, is very boring. <laughs> but every successful relationship I know, it's not that they're not crazy in love and it's not that there's not romance and magic in their in their world but um they're also not putting each other on trial constantly and so i think learning not to do that to not put people on trial is just it's hard to show that in a romantic way it's hard to show how much strength that can lend to a relationship and that's sort of what i was trying to do it's funny because her closest friends in the novel vadi clive what's the other guy's name zach zach <laughs> unfortunately <That's fine>. forgettable <laughs> He is. That's actually so perfect for his character. He'd, he'd be so pissed at you if he was real. It's so true. Well, they all used to work together at this now defunct magazine called Modern Psychology, which is a like a useful device because they're all psychologizing about each other and about Lola, which I feel mm -hmm. like we we do anyway. But um, it's fun that they're all like, oh, yeah, I wrote that article. But Lola's friends think that she is an extreme case because she has this like struggle is letting go of the past but but she frames her struggle entirely differently and I think that's probably true of most people who struggle with any given thing you don't mm -hmm. see it clearly but she says um my whole life I'd been telling myself the story of every breakup so that I had more agency in it which is I feel like something that we all do when things go bad for us no matter what that thing is and yet she still holds on to it. And then she has to experience all of these guys all in a row. I don't know. The fact that she doesn't run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a bit of sort of patina of, of wish fulfillment over what is essentially a comedy of manners. Um, and my conception of it is usually something that's, that's something you, you know, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might just get what you need, um, which would be a, a decent uh, borrowed tagline for this book. <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like she doesn't run because if this actually happened, and I don't think it's so bizarre, you know, when people talk about the wackiness of the book, uh, my sort of dirty secret that is that I don't think it's that strange. I think if I had unlimited resources and access to search engine employees and uh, the NSA, the IDF, and like several David Blaine-like figures um, and Instagram algorithms. You know, I could put you and someone you don't want to see in a restaurant tonight, and it actually wouldn't cost as much as it does in the book. <laughs> so it's, it's just not, it's, it's so, so I think that her curiosity and who she is overrides her fear. And that is, that is sort of a central tension of how much damage we do to ourselves. We do things that we know are bad for ourselves. <laughs> And we do them anyway because we have access to them. Um, I mean, I think it's now been debunked or, or changed around. But, you know, the marshmallow test with the kids, you know, where they give a little kid one marshmallow and leave the room and say, if you don't eat this, I'll come back 
in what is it like 60 seconds or, or four minutes or something like that with another marshmallow. So you'll get two if you hold out. Um, and that self-control is really hard for little kids. And that self-control when it comes to, um, the internet, to dating New York, all of it is really hard for adults. So it's all one giant failed marshmallow test. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> that you say that. Cause, um, there's a line that Lola has in there too, where she says, perhaps my generation made not enough of selecting jewelry. She's talking about her like problematic engagement ring, but right. too much of selecting a partner. Perhaps the internet had spoiled us more than we suspected. And we already suspected quite a bit. Yes. Do, do you feel like the problem is we're leaning too much into the marshmallow test? Like we are always waiting for that second marshmallow and we feel like <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be better next time in 60 seconds. Yes. I have to say I was recently in Scotland talking to an old friend of mine who is Scottish. So it was very much on her turf. And I was talking about a relationship and whatever my complaint was, uh, she laughed. She said, that's the most American thing I've ever heard. So I'm, I'm sorry that I'm ruining the joke by not telling you the joke. I don't really remember what I said, but she's like, you, you should just go to, you know, Aberdeen or, you know, the, the Shetland Islands where they're like, does he have his teeth? <laughs> you know, <laughs> does he, does he work and, and, and not drink too much? You know, I just feel like that's the sort of, um, I'm not saying that this is the bar we should all set for ourselves romantically, uh, and I'm also not trying to be disparaging of those who might be listening in the Shetland Islands, but I, I do feel like people ping pong. That's the difficulty is we lean into these technological crutches in social media and our friends and concern about perception. Um, and then the pendulum swings too far in the other way. And so when the character, you know, when Lola is sitting in a bar looking, you know, and the, her ex-boyfriend has gone to the bathroom and she looks down the length of the bar and she sees this random guy drinking or reading a book like it's a public library. And um, she thinks, well, why couldn't I just mate with that guy? But that's, but the, I don't, she, was, she doesn't really think that. I think it's more just an example of, of being fed up um, with the sort of society and the culture she lives in. Do you think we should take dating advice from Lola? Definitely not the beginning, but maybe oh, by the end of the book. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a compliment to try to um, extract something practical from fiction, <laughs> especially my fiction. Do, do you know? Um, and it, you know, you, of course, you write because you're you have a burning desire to tell a story because uh, you're trying to. Uh, bring something to the surface, uh, which makes it sound like cutting. So that's not helpful. Um, but I guess basically, you you know, you're writing to observe something that has not been observed. Um, but for me, especially because I have my roots in humor essays and, and narrative nonfiction, I'm, I'm primarily writing to entertain. So what I hope people take from it is an entertaining book where they, you know, they laugh, they cried. I don't necessarily think I would follow in her footsteps I imagine she would be someone who would be really good to text about your romantic foibles. We have links in the show notes to Sloane Crosley's new novel, cult classic, as well as her other work. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.